Hello and welcome to the Deeply Rooted Podcast. We are here to root deep in God's Word so that we can live lives of unshakable faith. My name is Ben Jacobson. I am one of the pastors at Hope Lutheran Church in Fargo, North Dakota, and I am joined today by Pastor Ben Sullivan, my colleague Ben. Good to have you. It's a joy as always. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's fun to have you back on. It's been a little bit and we're we're excited to continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark. We're getting close to the end. We're like three quarters of the way now, I guess. I'm not mm-hmm. great at fractions, but chapter 12 out of 16, 16, I believe, would pretty much get us to about three quarters. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we've learned a lot. We've looked at, at uh, this sort of slow unveiling of who Jesus is, and I think today we're going to have some insights as to who who Jesus is as as a Messiah and, and what it means to be Messiah and what it means that, that Jesus... Uh, has come into the world and we're going to learn, I think a little bit more about uh, where Jesus is going, what, what, what this walk that we've been on that, that started with him proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is near. Where is that going to end up and what's it going to look like? We're going to get another glimpse of that and some of the parties that are involved in, in this story. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about that Jesus tells a story about a vineyard and about the growth that happens there. And uh, of course, we know that because it's a parable, it's about so much more than that. But it got me thinking about growth and wondering, Ben, have you ever had a garden or grown something or... Yes. You have? Okay. I have. Uh, well, Do I, you have a green thumb? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, kind of yes and no. Uh, so I've never been, you know, I said this in one of my devotions early on too in like 2020 when Jade and I first got married, is I have never been, a, prior to marriage, I never was a flower man mm. until we got married and then all of a sudden I just uh, started doing flower stuff with Jade. Really? Um, like arranging yeah. Well, we had a ton of separate flower pots that we put on our back patio yeah. and just filled them with a ton of flowers. And it was kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, then they all died and then it wasn't as fun anymore and mm. we just haven't really gone back. And so we have, you know, we've had a garden before in the side of our house. We just have a little dirt pit and we've put, you know, carrots and green beans in there and, and just some other things. But uh, they've always gotten eaten by you know, some, some animal or I pulled, I just don't know what I'm doing. So I would pull out the carrots and wash them. And then the next morning they were already like soggy, which is, I guess, a rookie mistake. You're not supposed to do that. And you just think about the amount of time and effort to cook, like to make those. And then they don't turn out and I'm sure I could learn, but now with a child, we're just kind (laughs) of, our child is our garden. We're going to, we're going to slow things down. You know, when it comes to arranging those pots on your back step, my wife always says you need a a filler, like something to fill it out, a thriller, something that's like, oh, that's awesome, and then a spiller, which is something that like sweet potato vine spills over the edge. Mm-hmm. So hey. if you can combine all of those things, you will be in good shape. I had a garden once, um, and I planted this. Actually, I didn't plant seeds because I was too late to the game to plant seeds, so I planted plants, and then I never weeded it, and I never watered it, and somehow it produced, and I would go back and get cucumbers and peppers and whatever. Um but it didn't produce for very long because I didn't do what I was supposed to in terms of keeping things alive and in shape. So, and yet the Lord used even that. Yeah, something like that. Um, 
we got a little food out of there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You know, growing your own food is it's pretty fun. Pretty fun when you pull something out of the ground and eat it. I think you you get closer actually to you realize that that uh God is a provider in ways that you don't realize if you're not growing something. Yeah, I'd say it makes me more appreciative of like a grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> that too. Yeah. That too. So all right. We're going to read about all the stuff. But. We're going to read with all of that in mind. We are going to read Mark chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 27. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant of the tenants to collect them from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, 
Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. So Ben, when you hear that, and when you read along, what what things stand out to you and what questions come up in your mind? A couple you know, things that you and I were even just making comments on before coming on the podcast here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't recognize it right away. Um, but it is interesting that we do see three groups of people trying to question Jesus, trap Jesus. Yeah, who um, are those three groups? Uh, the first group in the parable of the tenants is the Pharisees. And we'll, you know, talk about that in a little while here. Uh, and then going to the second group, it, it's the Pharisees, but also a, a group called the Herodians, mm-hmm. uh, you know, religious leaders of the lot. And then the last one for talking about marriage at the resurrection is more a focus on the, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's very good. So we've got Pharisees and Sadducees, which were religious leaders, Herodians, who were uh, the, the people who were related to Herod, who was the Roman, I would say they would call him a client or a vassal or like a governor type person who was in charge of, a Jewish leader uh, in charge of keeping things in control, right? So we've got religious, uh, political, sort of this whole mix of people who are trying to uh, trip Jesus up, which is not the first time that this has happened as we've been reading along. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of examples of where they're trying to, to get at Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me, one of the questions I have is, okay, if the, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, why do they ask Jesus a question about the resurrection? Mm-hmm. I don't get that. Yeah. It's confusing. Uh, which and, is a decent question. Yeah, it's I a mean, great question. Yeah. It's a it's an important question, but why would the Sadducees be the ones to ask it? Mm-hmm. And it even says right there, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Um, and then they ask a question about the resurrection. So interesting enough, maybe they weren't quite sure about what they were but they were trying to they were trying to trip yeah, Jesus up too. Ill right? intent or all the different things. Yep. And then another thing that I think is really interesting, uh, when the Herodians and the Pharisees come to him, this is in starting around verse thirteen. They they make a they say something about Jesus that's really interesting. They say that we know you are a man of integrity and you aren't swayed by others, uh, but you treat the the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's a pretty important statement about who Jesus is. And maybe they're trying to lay it on thick, like, oh, we know that you're the one who's so truthful. But even in that, they make a statement about who Jesus is. He is a person of integrity, and he lets the truth of God be the thing that guides him. Mm -hmm. And I just think, boy, what an example we have in that for us to be people of integrity who are guided by the truth of God rather than all of the influences of the world. Because yeah. it's easy to be swayed by, by people and, and things, and, uh, but, but Jesus shows us a different way. 
Yeah, and it just shows the Pharisees, you know, and, and a lot of those religious leaders of the law, they did a lot of, they spoke a lot of half-truths a lot of the time, mm-hmm. where they were, you know, obviously trying to trip up Jesus a lot of times, but they did say some things that were true. And yeah. like what you just said in, in this particular verse, verse 14, um, you know, we got to be careful not to discount everything that they say, but also look at the intent of the heart. And that's really what Jesus would say, because Jesus would hear the words of their mouth, but it would usually not match the intent of their heart. Right. Yeah. And he, you know, they never, they kept trying to trip him up. Well, it never worked, mm-hmm. did it? Not one time, yeah. No. So let's, uh, I think we'll spend most of our time today looking at this parable. It's an interesting parable. We've done some episodes on parables and in, in specific, specifically about what a parable is. And so you can go back and listen to that if you need a reminder of, of what these important stories are. These are stories, I think, you know, that, that put two truths side by side. Mm-hmm. A truth, Jesus would often tell a story about something that people understood and knew. And a lot of times it, it would be agriculture because this was an agricultural society. So today yeah. it's a vineyard. This, this is something that people understand and know. Um, he's also talking about inheritance and uh, that would have been something that people understand too. Um, but then it's not really about that. It's about something more. And so let's let's dive into that, Ben. What? Where do we begin? So a man planted a vineyard. Let's, let's start there. Yeah, sounds good. You know, I just want to give a little context for anyone who's listening today too, if, if you're just joining us for the first time. I think it'll kind of, you know, and if you've been joining us every week, uh, glad to have you again. And uh, just kind of walking through where have we been, because I think it'll really help us to see where, you know, where we've come to get to this point. Sure. Uh, so we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. You could you know, easily go through it in, an, in about two weeks, just reading one chapter a day. And uh, I feel like we've already cover, covered a lot of ground. Uh, you we know, have. Jesus' baptism, you know, at the very beginning, marking the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, Jesus began to teach uh, to people about the greatest topic about, uh, you know, that's ever been uh, discuss the kingdom of God. So the greatest topic by the greatest teacher and preacher. Um, and then he began healing people, people. And this was showing them the compassion of God uh, on lost sinners, as well as it was authenticating the message that Jesus was speaking to them that, you know, what he talked about God was true. And then uh, we see a lot of focus on parables. Yep. So stories, analogies that reveal further truth about the kingdom of God. And so I think it's a good transition point for where we're going today is, you know, Jesus does talk about this other parable and there's a lot of context to focus on here. So we're just going to focus on this, this first part of our text, the parable of the tenants. And to begin, uh, it is passages like this, I think that really prove for us why it is so important to read through an entire book of the Bible in its full context. Uh, One of the things I really love about Deeply Rooted is we're not picking and choosing texts. Sometimes we do that for summertime, I know we went through our favorite psalms. Sure. Yeah. Um, but especially this year, we're really just walking through the passage and uh, we're not disregarding difficult passages of scripture that you know we may view as too difficult or want to dismiss for whatever reason or shy away from, but we're even going through that. And today's passage is an incredibly difficult passage. And yet I think it reveals to us some essential and I'd even say astounding truth about God, who he is, and mankind, who we are. Sure. 
So before jumping right into Mark 12, I just kind of want to step back to Mark 11. I think it's going to give us some more helpful things to really project where we're going in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark 11, 1 through 11 is uh, talking about what we would most commonly refer to as Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem is welcoming him as a king and holding Jesus in high regard. And although it doesn't say much about this in Mark's gospel, it's a pretty clear concise account. Uh, if we read the same account from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, as Jesus is passing by in Jerusalem, it says, the whole city asked, who is this? And notice the response from the crowds. They said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They're saying Jesus is another prophet. Mm -hmm. And if you've been following along with our podcast and study, this should sound oddly familiar uh, because about three weeks ago, uh, we were in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And uh, remembering what Jesus said to his disciples, he said a very similar question. He said to them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some said, John the Baptist, others say, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Mm -hmm. So there we, there we go. Mm -hmm. But then he asked them, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And I, I'm sure we've, you know, continued to talk about this, but what a question. And just for anyone who's listening today, a pause and, and ask themselves, how would you answer that question? Who do you say Jesus is? Um, our answer for this is extremely important because uh, depending on what we say, uh, Jesus would give a lot of correction. And we're going to look at today how they often would view Jesus in, in false ways and not understand fully who he was, and if we don't understand who he was, it's going to be very difficult to understand why he came. I think as we've walked through the gospel of Mark, that that question, who is this, mm -hmm. has been one of the chief questions of, of this gospel as Jesus has encountered people, as they've had exchanges, as he's talked with his disciples. That question, whether it's asked or not, seems to come up over and over again. And we've talked about how we've sort of in waves seen these glimpses of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who, who calls out demons. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who performs these miracles and teaches about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one, you know, we saw in, in the eighth chapter, this transfiguration, this moment where, where the disciples, the ones that were up on the mountain with Jesus saw that, that he was more than they had ever imagined, but that he was the son of God. Um, and so we're sort of getting these, we're getting these glimpses and maybe they didn't fully recognize that in the, in the transfiguration, but, but all of these things, um, have started to give us a little bit of a, of a glimpse. And so we'll get more of a glimpse now with yeah. this story. Yep. And yeah, it all fall under all of those things, you know, fall under this umbrella of, of what Peter said, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it was on this truth that the, the entirety of scripture, the entirety of the church uh, was built in this reality of who Christ was. Yes. And let me correct myself. The transfiguration was in chapter nine, gotcha. not eight. Okay. For anyone listening. Yep. Critical error <laughs> on my in, part. <laughs> I'm glad you repented. There you yep. go. I didn't, wasn't even uh, thinking about it. So, um, so anyway, looking back at this, you know, we're looking back because we're looking at another parable today where we're going to wrestle once again, kind of with the question of who Jesus is and why it's so important that we get this right is we're going to see a situation where a group of people 
these people called the Pharisees, we've talked you know, quite a bit about them, the Gospels talk about them a lot, that in their evil intent, they do not get this right. And so we're just going to kind of piece by piece, verse by verse, look through chapter 12. Uh, it's the parable of the tenants. It says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables, so story, illustration, analogies. And he said, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So pausing right there, a vineyard was a common analogy for the people of that day. Vineyards were everywhere. Uh, this particular vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And not only just like the physical location, but it's the people. It's the Israelites, uh, the descendants of Jacob uh, in Genesis who, um, you know, were God's chosen people. And Jesus is really pulling this imagery here from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. And we even had that as one of our uh, deeply rooted um, texts that we looked at in the fall. Um, which, if you read, has many of the same characteristics of the nation of Israel that he's using in this imagery. Uh, but not only that, Jesus would also refer to the scriptures like this often, as the Pharisees were experts of the Old Testament law, so would have known and clearly understood his reference. Sure. It, it wasn't in an effort for Jesus to try to one-up them. He was speaking to them in a way that they clearly would have understood. Sure. He's using their language. He's trying, to, yeah, I mean, and, and really doing anything so he's not cutting any corner. Mm-hmm. And the farmer, the farmers he's renting, um, got, um, God's people to represent the Jewish leaders. So he's it, representing the Pharisees, uh, and he's expecting them to take care of his people. Mm-hmm. And so verse 2 comes and says, At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard to see, you know, hey, what's the fruit of your labor? And every time we see a servant mentioned in this parable, a servant uh, represents one of the Old Testament prophets. In other words, God would send prophets to see the fruit of the vineyard, the fruit of God's people that were under the Pharisees who were supposed to be, you know, shepherding them and producing all this fruit. And then they were going to address it as needed. And so the Pharisees have an incredible responsibility to care for these servants and have been doing the good job of shepherding God's people uh, so that there's fruit to be seen. But that's not really quite what we see. Verse 3, it says, They seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant to them. This one, they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. In verse 5, he sent still another, and that one they killed. And he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. So this is the line of, of prophets. That's what we see. You know, it's all in reference to the Jewish leaders over the years that uh, had killed those who came to speak the truth of God and to collect the fruit of their labor. Um, you know, and just doing some research pretty quickly, you know, you see the prophet Isaiah was said to have been sawed in half, uh, you know, in uh, under King Manasseh of Judah. Uh, prophet Jeremiah had escaped death many times, but eventually was stoned to death. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel was killed after refusing to worship the false idols of Israel. Uh, the prophet Micah was killed by Joram of Israel, who was the son of King Ahab for rebuking them for King Ahab's lack of reverence for God. Uh, the prophet Amos was tortured by Amaziah, who was a priest of Bethel and escaped, uh, but soon died thereafter. You know, these are just a couple of these instances where we're we're seeing the legitimacy of Jesus' claims. Yeah. Uh, that he wasn't just pulling, you know, 
things out of thin air, but he's very clearly showing how it was the religious leaders who always were the ones responsible, those of high religious standing, who were the ones responsible for the death of God's people, mm -hmm. his truth tellers, his prophets. So one after another, they were being killed for their faithfulness to God. And uh, not only being killed, but being killed by those who claim to love this same God. And so it wasn't working. So what happens next? Verse 6, he said, he had one left to send, a son, who he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, this will, res they will respect my son. Now, who possibly could this be referring to? Well, it's Jesus. It's the son of God. Uh, very clearly speaking of himself. And even within Mark's gospel, we have seen twice, I believe, both at the baptism of Jesus as well as in the transfiguration, which is in chapter 9. Uh, God makes a claim and says, this is my, my son. son, right? So when Jesus says this, even those of us who have just simply read through Mark's gospel, mm -hmm. the reference here becomes clear abundantly yeah yep. yeah it wouldn't have been the first time that you heard it um and so of course they're seeing this but then verse seven but the tenants said to one another think about this instead of going oh this is the son we need to honor him they say this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard uh, now i mean <laughs> we may be asking what in the world why <laughs> uh this doesn't make any sense but that's exactly what they, uh, the Pharisees were on track to do this entire time. Uh, they were greedy, right? Uh, he is the heir. If we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. It's all in this root of, you know, very, over and over we see that they, they loved money. They loved earthly, uh, uh, earthly um, power. They loved earthly praise from people. They wanted all the power and glory for themselves, and so they were not going to stop at anything not even having God's own son murdered so that they would continue to rule. Uh, and since Jesus had a massive following in their minds, they could no longer stand back and let this happen. So they were going to completely take him out of the picture uh, with hopes that this would solve everything. And then, you know, really at this point in the text, this is where it gets a little gruesome, um, but it's a question that Jesus poses in the middle of the parable that we can't dismiss. In verse 9, he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And for those of you listening, uh, what all is going through your mind? You know, we all have answers, but I think we can assume this is not going to look good for those farmers. Okay, it's not going to look good for the Pharisees. Um, what is the landowner of the vineyard going to do? Verse 9, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Um, first, you know, uh, Matthew 21, 41 says it this way. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Hmm. It's gruesome. Like this is talking about God. This is, this is the new Testament. This is not old Testament. Uh, this is what, what Jesus is making clear. Uh, but we got to be careful. Uh, we must not walk away from this thinking that God is the harsh one here. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to remember it's the Pharisees who were belligerent and wanting all glory, honor, power for themselves, and they were not going to stop at anything until they achieved it, even if that meant killing his one and only son. Um, we got to see the full picture here if we're going to understand uh, the, the words of God. And I think it's also important to see, you know, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. 
that foretold that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And uh, when it says he would give the vineyard to others, it's a clear reference to the Gentiles being included into the kingdom of God. No longer was it just Israel who were God's people, but anyone who would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, would be received into his kingdom. And that's really why Jesus goes on and he quotes Psalm 118, 22 through 23. That's when he says, haven't you heard the, the passage of scripture, the stone the builders rejected, Christ, had become the cornerstone of the church. And the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so, you know, it, it, it's very clear this this picture that he's, he's building up. And so the question becomes, what's going to be re- the response of the Pharisees? Are they going to repent after hearing this? Are they going to cry out in, in sorrow? Verse 12, it says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. One of my initial questions, you know, at the beginning of, of this text was, you know, did the Pharisees know that, that this parable was spoken about them? And verse 12 makes it abundantly clear they did. Sure. And, did. and yeah, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, just agreeing with you. Yeah. But, that it, it seems clear that they did. And yet, what's so just astounding to me is knowing that this parable is about them did not lead them to repentance. It didn't lead them to sorrow, to see their own brokenness, their own sin, their own iniquity in all of this, their their own evil uh, desire. But it only elevated their anger and hatred toward them. Mm-hmm. Uh, little did they know they were actually actively fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus had just presented to them before their very eyes, but their hearts were so hard uh, that they could not see what was blatantly obvious to them. You, you know, the, you mentioned this is gruesome and it's difficult and it's hard to imagine. Um, one of the things that Pastor Mike said the other a few weeks ago when we were recording a, a, a podcast, you can go back and listen to that one as well, but when we encountered a hard passage, he said, uh, keep reading. And I think that's that's uh, really important for this one too. Keep reading because this this thing that was intended for evil, mm-hmm. the death of the Son of God. There's little gospel glimpses in here. The stone that the builders rejected, the one that was thrown away, cast aside, became the cornerstone. It became the foundation of something new. And so this death of Jesus will become something new, right? What, what the, the Pharisees intended for evil, God uses for good and will use for good to bring an offering of salvation even to those who perpetuated this evil thing. Um, mm. And another thing that, that comes to my mind too is, you know, we talk about, we think about who, who are the people in this passage. And, you know, we say the Pharisees and, and yes, it is the Pharisees. But also when we read, I think one of the helpful things we can do is say, who am I in this? And really, I'm probably more like the Pharisees than anyone else. Oh, gosh. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the ways, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> one of the ways we know that is uh, 
we can identify with the crowd. The crowd is is very clearly a important group of people in Mark's gospel. They start to follow Jesus, and this crowd swells to the point where Jesus has to be out in a boat preaching, and you know the crowd is following him. In this case, the crowd protects him because the the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law, the elders, they were afraid of the crowd. But in just a few short chapters, those followers of Jesus, the crowd, they're going to become the ones who are yelling, Mm. crucify him. And so it's not just the Pharisees who are complicit in this. It's everyone, Mm -hmm. even the ones who who have been following Jesus and have been amazed. And And then the last thing that I think is really important is... There's this uh, phrase here, or a sentence. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The New Testament talks many places about how salvation becomes this inheritance. And so what they're thinking here is, let's kill him, and then we'll get the vineyard. But it's about so much more than that. And the inheritance that comes out of Jesus' death is not a vineyard. It's not a piece of land. It's not, um, it's not something that we can store up, but instead it is this free gift of salvation and eternal life, being brought back into a relationship with God the Father. That's the inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much more. Their, their view is so short-sighted. Mm-hmm. They want they want the vineyard mm. and the power, but what Jesus gives is so much more than that in His death. And what a beautiful understanding! I mean, a hard reality um, that all of us have to you know deal with, but a, a beautiful understanding in the sense of um, my wife Jade always teases me. I like to use the phrase: "It's not an either or; it's a both and." <laughs> and I'll say that on a daily basis. Yeah. But I feel that that's kind of what's happening here in that I really like how you were inflective of this scripture saying, you know, well, I'm a Pharisee. For anyone listening, it's easy to think, well, they're the ones who crucified Christ. I never would have done that. But there's a couple things. First, it was them who killed Christ. They were the ones who yelled and shouted, crucified him, who led the mob, who brought them up on the hill and cast lots for his garments. They had him put on the cross. Um, In the same way, two different things. It is our sin that held him there. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't just die for the sin of those who had sinned before he came. He died for the sins of eternity past who would sin after his death, Mm -hmm. meaning you and me. So that means every single time I've sinned, when he died upon that cross, that's why he died because my sin held him there. He died to redeem me. It wasn't just the Pharisees. It is really inflective of my own you know, my own sin that is the sin that put him there. But then it's a both and in the sense of Christ went there willingly. Right. It's not like he had no idea, no intent of coming to earth and all of a sudden they put him to the cross and he just, you know, was a victim in all of this. Uh, Nowhere in scripture do we see that. We actually see he was victorious over the grave, uh, that he was uh, 
full on in acknowledgement of what was going to happen. And he tells us that chapter 10, he says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they're going to condemn him to death. Yep. And, and it's just over. And you know, last week's passage, he's, he's continuing to do that. Yeah. Mark 10, um, we were reading that this morning, 32 through three or through 52. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, not a one-time thing. I think in some of the gospels, he says it three times, like what's going to happen. Um, and you know, the time hasn't come, the time hasn't come until Judas comes. And then he says, the time has come for the son of man to, to be delivered into the hands of sinners. Um, come, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Uh, it is this very hard understanding in that it is our sin that put in there but at the same time, a beautiful understanding because if he had not died on that cross, not only would the Pharisees not have had any opportunity for salvation, which a lot of them we, we don't see turning that corner, but you and I would not have any opportunity for salvation. Um, you know, and, but that's the beauty of this passage is it is a call for us to repent of our sin. You know, that's what Ash Wednesday is about. That's what Lent is about is we're heading towards the, the cross and the empty tomb uh, to look at my own life and look at the areas I need to repent of my sin daily. And and we don't always like that, you know, that mentality. It's not always the most positive thing, uh, but that's the message he came. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when we repent of our sin and place our full trust in Christ, that is when his blood washes completely white as snow, our slate. And now the father looks at us as if we've never even sinned. He looks at us as if we are as blameless as his one and only son. That is not a righteousness that we ever could have attained on our own, but is the righteousness given by grace through faith. And that's where all of this is heading. That's where we will eventually get to in the weeks to come. And so I want to make sure that I invite you folks back next week as we continue this story, as we get more and more glimpses of who this Jesus is, who this Son of God and Son of Man is, and what he will do for the world. I invite you to uh, subscribe to this podcast so that you can get uh, the most up-to-date updates on, on when a new episode comes out. If you're uh, enjoying listening, I invite you to give us a rating as well on whatever platform that you listen to or listen on. And then if you have questions, uh, if you have questions about Hope Lutheran Church or about our deeply rooted Bible studies that are happening not just online, but uh, or not just through this podcast, but we also have some in-person and virtual options for studying this word each and every week, just visit us on our website at fargohope.org slash adults. We'll see you back next week. In the meantime, stay deeply rooted. Mm-hmm.